Well, I want to welcome everybody and give a special welcome to some lovely young ladies in Starkville that are in college. My daughter Haley and her roommates are, didn't go to church today. They'll do that next week, but they said they're going to be tuning in to dad. They're watching today, so I know you want me to do good, and I want you gals to pay attention uh, for 30 minutes plus and then uh, graduate and get a job and do the right thing. But we're so glad that y'all are joining us. We love Haley, and I want to make sure everybody knows that, that they know that. Haley, we named her Haley Jordan Green. And we call her uh, Haley Joe sometimes, and then recently we started calling her Haley Joy because she just brings the joy. Some of y'all know her, and she just brings the joy. We really do love her. This is week three of Thriving in Babylon, where we're doing a walk through Daniel. We're looking at something called the Spirit of Babylon. Babylon existed as a city and as an empire. It was uh, large and in charge for a long time. We're, ba- we're basically in 605 B.C., uh, give or take, of that era of the world. And we're, we're, we've said that even though Babylon... Uh, it died, it went away, it, the spirit of Babylon lives on. There's 280 references, someone fact-checked uh, Sermon 1, and I said 260-something, 280 references in Scripture on the spirit of Babylon. It's our humanity's a desire to build great things for our, ourselves, to turn away from God, to make a name for ourselves. It's the spirit of, of pride and uh, rebellion and sin, we'll say that. But uh, the spirit of Babylon exists, but Babylon is an empire. Take a look, another map. Uh, nerd out a little bit. You see the big old Mediterranean Sea. You see the Red Sea below that up to the north of that is the Tigris and Euphrates and all the, the land here. And Babylon is to the center right, far right center, upper center, I guess you could say. And if you scan down lower left between the uh, Mediterranean and Red Sea, you'll see Egypt, Egypt. The Egyptians and the Assyrians had been the superpowers, but Babylon was flexing its muscle and they had the might, they had the men, they had all the power uh, to take over and that's exactly what they did. There was a big a battle that uh, won them the world basically and Babylon went to Egypt in that area and they fought and notice uh, if you see it or you can speculate, Judah is there, Judah is the southern part of Jerusalem in Israel and boy, lots happening in that part of the world, isn't there? I just saw on a serious note, a parenthetical note, that some experts, psychologists and all, were telling parents to disable their children's social media for the next little bit because we can't control that kind of stuff. It's sad, isn't it? But the images that we're seeing of people um, being killed and slaughtered is terrible. This is the cradle of civilization. And here uh, you see when the Babylonians took over the Egyptians, Judah, Jerusalem, the kingdom of Israel was in between, and they went and besieged the city. History tells us that they didn't overthrow it. They could have. They could have wiped them. They could have wiped Jerusalem off the face of the map. But I think God had other plans. But they besieged the city, which means they set up camp there, and they made sure that no food could get in or food could get out, no people could get in, no people could get out. It was a, a terrible thing. And king, uh, the king of Israel was King uh, Jehoiakim, and he was a corrupt king. Remember we said last week, historically, Israel was a, a small nation uh, surrounded by other big nations, and those nations had military, and they had kings, and Israel wanted the king, and God gave them kings, and the kings kept turning away from God. And so Israel's king and their people turned away from God, which they, they chose their own way. They said, God, we know you've said this to be true, but you're kind of an old guy, and now we know new ways, and we're going to follow our way. We turned away from you, and God gave them over. And, I, you know, it's just something maybe we should put in front of the church. If we as a nation continue to turn away from God, what will the results be? Some of you are fascinated by this and you think about empires and where we stand 
in the world. What, what about America? And we're, we've kind of given up on a theocracy. That's not the goal of it all. I ask in week one if the goal is for a Christian today is to take back our nation for God. Are we like it's Jerusalem or are we to live in Babylon where there's a spirit around us and we've got to learn to live differently. We've got to learn to live with wisdom and integrity in this world today. And so uh, God gives Jerusalem over into the hands of the Babylonians. He allowed it to happen. And King Nebuchadnezzar was very evil. He captured things and he captured people. Stuff he took. Uh, history tells us, scripture itself tells us that he took articles of the temple. It would be like if your sports team, I think I've said this before, but if your sports team beat another sports team, say your rival, and there was like a trophy, a gold trophy, like an egg or something, and you took that egg and took it back to your town and put it in the display case and said, we are better than you. That's what was happening, but far more was at stake there because it was not a silly football rivalry, which is what that is. This is God's stuff. And so the Babylonians were saying, hey, our gods, plural, better than your God. And this affected Daniel and his people as we've been learning about but King Nebuchadnezzar said uh, to these guys uh, to his chief eunuchs and I mentioned this in week one part of the spirit of Babylon that exists in our day is gender confusion and they had eunuchs and they would emasculate some of these men and require them uh, to be servants and that went on then uh, as early back as these this time Nebuchadnezzar took kings and this is one of the cruelest things in history he would take kings and he killed some but he collected some and he would poke their eyes out he blinded them emasculated them and would parade them around as, at parties for his pleasure oh look they were great but they're not greater than me look what i have done look what i have taken and that's what we have in this king and nebuchadnezzar uh, chapter one of verse six tells us that the king nebuchadnezzar he told his chief eunuch to go find uh, people men who were good looking no physical defect they were, uh, had proclivities toward wisdom and perception and discernment, and they would be, would be able to serve in the king's court, men of great knowledge. And four of the guys they found were da Daniel. They were, had different names. They were given the Hebrew names if you grew up in Sunday school, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these four young guys, they are young. They're teenagers, and they're taken captive. All the Bible, almost all the Bible was written in in holy lands of God's people, the sanctuary, the temple, the Garden of Eden, the Sea of Galilee, et cetera, et cetera. What's different about Daniel and unique and great for us today is it was written in enemy territory, hostile territory. He takes these men away and they put them in school. It's a three-year program, underground program, if you will, where they can get a degree in debauchery and paganism. And they don't just want to teach them about the Babylonians. Like, we're not here to teach you about the Christians. Uh, they wanted to make them Babylonians. We would love for you to be followers of Jesus. You've got to learn about him, but we want you to follow Jesus. Well, they wanted them to adopt their gods. And so you'll see just a look here, a snippet of what Daniel and his cronies had to learn. Everything, language, the Akkadian form of language, which are these funny wedge-shaped letters, very complex. But remember, he got the wise guys among them. They had special knowledge, and then God continued to give uh, incredible insight, miraculous insight, but they had to learn the, he the heroes and the gods and the customs and the legends and astrology. You know, that's very big uh, in chapter two. Last week we left off where King Nebuchadnezzar had a psychedelic crazy dream. Any, any guys ever dream crazy stuff? Well, he did, and it was all tied to his ego, and he's a, a man of great immense wealth and power, and powerful people, I mentioned last week, love to control things. He, he was all about power and control. And if your life, if your God is power and control, you'll be given to fear. He was afraid of the future. What is this dream I had? Who can interpret the dream? What does the dream mean? What does the dream mean? What does the dream mean? And his people around him said, nobody can tell us the dream except there is a guy. And they brought Daniel and God gave him favor. Uh, God gave him the 
the discernment to interpret the dream. And here's what the dream had to do with this statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And the head is made of gold and the chest area is made of silver. Uh, the midsection there, what can you say in church? The midsection there uh, was made of bronze. And then you see down the legs below iron. And then the feet is made, or is made of iron and clay. And what's the symbolism of this? In the story, Daniel interprets the dream and says, hey, this rock hit the feet. The feet were only made of clay. The rock hits the feet, dashes it, and it spills over and it's destroyed. What does this mean? What are these kingdoms? And you can tell Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he was pleased with Daniel's work, with his interpretation. He promotes him. He gives him gifts, etc. Uh, that's where we left off. But what, what about this, by the way? What about this dream? And by the way, looked at the bottom, feet of clay. Different historians and scholars and people have interpreted this differently. I told you kind of what I believe. And, and by the way, who cares about all these other empires? The bottom line is the feet. The bottom line is all these empires are shakeable. They don't, they don't stand. The, these feet are made of clay. Ever said that? Man, I got feet of clay. Or you talk to a leader or somebody was telling you about a leader who disappointed you, a pastor, parent, coach, politician, somebody, they let you down, they showed uh, a moral failure or sin or something and, and somebody says hey they've got feet of clay it's kind of a popular expression it comes from Daniel chapter 2 the dream we looked at last week in fact I, I, I wikipedia'd an entity a feet of, an entity with feet of clay may appear powerful and unstoppable but they cannot support their splendor if your life is about you you will not be able to support your splendor if your life is hey look at me you can't support that it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kingdom your kingdom is a kingdom that will crumble. It'll be easily knocked over. And it originates, you see Wikipedia backing me up. It originates here from the book of Daniel. Let's look at it um, real quick. Let's look at feet in the Bible. Anybody like feet? Anybody love feet? Like you like to get your feet rubbed? You don't mind rubbing your spouse's feet? Yeah, absolutely nobody responded in either service today. Yeah, there was a hand. Thank you very much. How many of you don't like feet? You're a little uh, eked out by it. Anybody? No, no participation, we'll have to do better. Romans chapter 10, it says this, how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are what? The feet of those who bring good news. If you bring good news and peace to a land, to a people, to your family, your feet, the Bible says, are beautiful. Habakkuk 3.19 puts it this way, the Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes what? My feet like those of a deer, enables me to walk on mountain heights. If you're, the Bible describes feet as you know, God's blessing on your life and it's fleet feet, if you will. There's beautiful feet and fleet feet. And then you see these feet of clay. And the feet of clay is this interpretation of the dream that uh, if your kingdom is about you, it's not, it's not going to work. That's where we left off. Let's pick up in chapter 3 and we're going to roll fast. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue. Are you kidding me? 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, are you kidding me? Like he just had a dream about a statue and, and the dream was interpreted in a way that's very unfavorable. Like that would be a wake-up call to say, okay, what's my life about? I'm living for my kingdom. And what does he do? He wakes up from the dream. He gives Daniel a promotion, gives him gifts, uh, all that stuff. But then he says, hey, I'm going to build a statue of me. And you know what was wrong? I'm, this is my sanctified imagination. But Nebuchadnezzar is thinking with this tremendous ego. He's thinking the problem with the first statue that I dreamt about was that it was only me and the head, the only gold. I'll make the whole thing me and the whole thing will be gold. That's what was wrong with it. And we do that, don't we? People whose God is their own self-importance, people who don't have a God to worship, you're going to worship something and you are a terrible thing to worship. I am a terrible thing to worship. And this is what he's doing is great uh, delusion. It's easy for us to go, oh, what a tyrant. 
But this kind of stuff, the spirit of Babylon, can be bound up in us as well in our, in our culture also. Oh, by the way, on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, any, any Bible map experts in the room, you know what that is? That's where the Tower of Babel was built in Genesis chapter 11. We will build this tower. It will reach to the sky, and uh, we will make a great name for ourselves. Never a good life strategy. It always ends badly. Remember the interpretation of the dream? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, feet of clay. These are kingdoms that all ended. There's only one shake, unshakable, only one unshakable kingdom. That's an invitation for us to learn and say, I want to be a part of the unshakable kingdom. So here, let's roll through it. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You know where this is going, right? A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded. They're so proud of their empire, the people that they have conquered and brought to Babylon. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue, set, uh, statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Basically, we would say today in our language, we would say that he got everybody on the payroll to show up at the ribbon cutting ceremony. Everybody that worked for him needed to show up, and everybody needed to bow down. Now, isn't this story so odd and so ancient? Like, we would never uh, see this happening in educated, advanced, first-world countries like ours. But we have idols. Do you think we have idols today? Do you think we have as many idols as they had? The great Reformed theologian, uh, John Calvin, said that the heart is an idol factory. That within you and within me, our, the deepest part of us, who we really are, produces idol after idol. If God is, doesn't reign supreme, if we don't bow to him and have an understanding of the proper order of relationship, then other idols, other gods take over. Here's how Romans 1 famously put it. For they knew God, but they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Have you ever seen really smart people uh, kind of lose their mind and they're just they're, they buy into ideologies and stuff that just seems really strange and they follow it and, and make it. I mean, you ever seen that? It's, it happens. It happens in our day. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. When we look at our world, I want to say this about idols. I want to point uh, to something you may not see coming. Ideologies are the idols of our day. Bow down. This is the way to think. This, this ideology, this is the path to the good life. This is goodness. This is truth. This is virtue. So bow down or you'll be canceled. Bow down or we'll delete you. Bow down or you'll be blacklisted. This is the, the ideology. The idols of our day are ideologies and we're expected in the, the spirit of Babylon to bow down 
to faulty thinking. Ideologies are the idols of our day. A quick, quick, quick commercial I want to give. I did it last service, but there's a book by a brilliant woman named Rebecca McLaughlin. She wrote Confronting Christianity and Confronting Jesus. Uh, She's, man, she's slamming it. And she wrote this book called The Secular Creed. And I would love for uh, my kids, and I'd love for you um, to read this book. Look how little it is. But it's packed full of five false ideologies. And yeah, these are the combustible ones. I'll, say, I'll, I'll let you know now. These are the combustible ones. These are the controversial ones. These are the ones that, man, I mean, there is on the left and there, on the right, there's a big fight. And there's people saying that this is the path. And our, today, our ideologies are our idols. You better believe this. You better get in lockstep. You better bow down. The furnace is a place where I want to define it this way. I see a few note takers, but the furnace is this. It's when the heat goes up. It's when your back is against the wall. It's when you're in the line of fire. A furnace is a time in your life and mine when the heat goes up, when your back is against the wall and you're in the line of fire. Look a little bit about how the story plays out. Some Chaldeans, these are men in particular who loved astrology and sorcery and looking at the stars and stuff. They took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse The Jews, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. There, there, then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Remember when he, the, the very nature of saying their names? The, these are the Babylonian names I've given you. I've redefined you. I've asked you to move away from your faith and serving the true and living God to following me and my gods and my religion. Just the nature of using their names. A lot of times when a teacher or someone important says your name, you're like, ah. But look at this. And he says their name says, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue that I have made. But if you don't worship it, you will be immediately thrown into a furnace, a blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? In this ancient story, we see a reality for everybody. And nobody in this room is immune to this. Uh, Everybody, it's inevitable that fire comes. It's just, it's going to happen. There's Life is going to, what do we say? The heat gets turned up. Your back is against the wall. And you're in the line of fire. There's going to be furnaces. You have them and I have them. I'm kind of maybe on the front end of one in my own life uh, right now. But we all have fires. Maybe your furnace could be uh, a marriage. Maybe your furnace could be your financial life or your relational life or your vocational life. Maybe uh, the the furnace in your life is an addiction or a a direction you've gone south or you're holding on uh, to a secret. This could be a furnace for you where things that the heat gets turned up, your back is against the wall and you're in the line of fire. I would love to say, man, I would love to live where I could be a furnace dodger, but you can't dodge the furnace. The fire is going to come. I want to share with you just a, a brief moment. And this is in the spirit of transparency. I want to share with you a little bit of how the fire is turned up in my life as a, as a person uh, and as 
a pastor. And doing so, I, I want to share with you briefly, I think some of you can connect with this. Uh, Twelve years ago, when the Fonder Church started, we made a commitment uh, that we would pursue God, that we would be an incredibly generous church, that we'd be on the front end of being a conduit, of being a benevolent force in a city that uh, needs us. And I committed to the church and uh, with our leadership that we would lead our finances with integrity and with transparency and with generosity. If we call you to tithe, that we would want to make sure that we're doing that. In fact, for many, many years, most of our days, we've actually doubled the tithe. We've taken uh, 20% and we've invested it. Here's how good God has been in the life of Fonager. This fires me up because God is good. God rescues and God delivers. Uh, we started in 2011, but that was just like the fall. So we don't have really any statistics there. Uh, but we do in 2012, and we had $590,000 come in the first year. Do you remember that first year? I know you do. We were like, yeah, God is so good. Hundreds of thousands of dollars have come in in the life of our church. And notice every single year that we've been a church, as we've been a benevolent force, as we've sowed uh, generously, God has sown generously into the life of our church. Give, and it will be given back to you. That's the testimony that we've experienced. Listen, God has done this not because of me, but in spite of me. I tell you what a blessing it is to stand and report. We've been able to report the goodness of God um, through these years. A few uh, months ago, I stood here on this stage uh, knowing that we were uh, growing with our families, that our space was very limited with children. The stage will be full of families and loved ones tonight. And it happens several times a year. And so we knew that we needed to make a move. We launched a campaign, if you call it that, called Growing Up. I put three chairs on the stage. I said, we're interrupting our regularly scheduled sermon series. And I talked about from Psalm 78 about God, uh, about us pursuing the next generation. I put three chairs and I said, this chair represents uh, our past, the tradition of the church, those who've gone before us, what God has done in the life of our church through people and resources and ministries. The middle uh, chair is where we are now. And then the, the third chair was the future chair. I believe, and I said this back in April, that the third chair is the most important chair because it represents you and I making space and room for families and young people and children having room in discipleship environments where children want to come back, where they want to learn and where we want to partner with you. And by the way, parents, if you want your faith, you want your children to have a staying faith, take them to church and talk about it at home. Take them to church and talk about it at home. And we want to partner with you to help you do that. What's been good news, it's, it's really great news, is so many of you have responded. Uh, we've had gifts of the larger kind of gifts have come in. It really inspires people to think about children's environments and doing that at a next level. My wife Susan and Meg, uh, our new hire, have worked hard to get volunteers to make sure the environments are clean and safe and excellent. Nothing extravagant, just done with excellence. Uh, the, through the monies that have been given, we've been able uh, to do all the demo on the, four, on the third floor. We've been able to do the floors. We put in the strip lights. We painted the walls. We've got color and furnishings and lots of things coming. But my accountants have come to me recently with some concern. And this is me as an organizational leader and a person uh, feeling the heat, feeling like my back is against the wall. We've had more people giving to Fonder Church than ever before, but uh, the giving has not um, kept up. The monthly giving has not kept up. So we've been trying to discern how many of these big special gifts have come in and where are we now? And we've had to tighten things up. Here's a proposed aspirational budget. This is just me being transparent as a leader. This is what we're hoping for for this next year, a budget of $3 million, really more. And notice the, the pies there. 20-something uh, percent goes into the, uh, to the building. Uh, staffing takes 44%. 
Uh, and then uh, look how great this is. This is a God brag, but a third, which would, would be, could be, a million dollars is given away to ministries and to missions. Um, the church gets a bad rap on money. You ever agree? And I think the church deserves a bad rap on money a lot of times. But there are ways I feel like the church gets a bad rap about money. I want to share with you one. Some people look and go, and this is, by the way, uh, well um, below average. We spend on staffing and building. We spend well below average for the American church. And I know you're going to fact check me and I, I green light you. Go, go do that. And I think you'd be a little more proud of this church if we are your church. But I was just thinking about the building there. And I know some of you are Ole Miss fans and Mississippi State fans and LSU and Alabama and whatever. And go find out how much your football stadium costs, how many hundreds of millions of dollars your football stadium costs. And then dig a little deeper and figure out how many times people actually attend events in that stadium. Six, seven, eight home games. Morgan Wallen may play a concert. He may not play a concert, uh, whatever the case may be there. But you have events in the stadiums, right? But they're only used a handful of times a year. And it's hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And they'll do hundreds of dollars for lights. Now, one stadium gets the cool lights. The other college got to get cool lights. You got to keep up with each other. And that's the where we are in buildings. But I wonder why the church sometimes gets a hard time. Because I look at our facility and think, you know, we married Seth and Bella last night. We're going to do another wedding next weekend. We're going to do another wedding the next weekend. I met with someone this week uh, who's just checked his dad, 73 years old, into hospice care, and we're likely to uh, perform, uh, preside over a funeral here. Every week, a thousand plus people come into our building on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, and throughout the week. We use our space, and God gets glory as we gather in groups, and we celebrate parties, and come alongside each other, and worship together in this place. And so I just look and think, man, I'm kind of proud to have a church that has a great building that will use and spend on it. Think about staffing. I came back from a lunch uh, this week, and I had just been with somebody who needed a pastor and I administered to him and when I got back to the office I noticed that one of our staff women had just been with someone who uh, is experiencing incredible trauma and who was just on the threshold of whether she wanted to live or not and then I looked over at old Chris Mixon y'all know Chris with lots of tattoos and a beard I don't know why we let him be on our team but he was about to go speak to the Hartfield Hawks who beat my team on Friday night but he, he'd just been doing the chapel there every week and go to speak uh, to those young men on, this, on, this, on that football team. These are our staff. In just one snapshot, I'm looking at our staff and I'm thinking, why do we, are we bugged by a church that's willing to spend money on staff? It, economically, it's job creation, number one thing, but in and of itself, uh, that's a cool thing. But this is investing in people. We have 15 full-time staff who invest with people in discipleship and evangelism and ministries of care uh, and compassion. It is my hope that as we walk through this, what I hope will be a short journey, is that God will once again prove himself to be a provider. That God will meet me as the pastor in the furnace, that he will provide and he'll provide for you. Listen, your own journey, you're not standing here going, man, we support some great works. Reclaim Project and Red Door and Mississippians Against Human Trafficking. We're helping to plant churches. We're coming inside a lot of people. It is my hope that we don't shrink back in our giving that we don't bow down to the spirit of Babylon, but that we will think differently about money, sex, and power, and our wallets, and our giving, and that we can support these great ministries all the more, that we don't have to shrink back. But I felt the heat. I felt the fire. How much so? Because some of you know me as a friend, and so I just want you to know that I'm great. I'm fine. I'm good. I did call our staff together, and I said, I'm not alarmed, but I'm alert. And they all freaked out just began to run around the room tearing their garments and into the streets and everything I said no come back listen I'm 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 not alarmed I'm alert look at me for a second I feel the fire and you feel the fire I'm just telling you my story because as I said 
uh, a minute ago, I want you to know I'm committed to being transparent. And as I began to pray about this sermon, I thought about the furnace in my life. This is what came up. This is the furnace I'm in. I thought, well, I'm not going to share it. But then I thought, you know, I'm not going to be a good pastor because you know when we're doing well, and I want you to know when we hit a hiccup and when we have concern. That's just being, that's just being transparent as a leader. Some of you young people, you're going to be leading an organization. Look at me. Be transparent. You, you, you're inspired by transparency. Lead with transparency when God gives you the favor to do so. What is your furnace? Can I just say right on top of what I'm saying, your furnace could be financial. And I want to invite you to invite God into that. And I say this often, but some of you, you, you pray for God to provide for you. And you ask for the job or the promotion or the business deal to go well. But you haven't invited him into your finances. And I want to encourage you to do so. And as a man, I'm telling you, we have an opportunity together to lock arms and be a force in our neighborhood, in our city that desperately needs us. What's your furnace? You're asking a question. I, I got on my knees this week and I said, God, I need you. I need you and you are able. And I've seen it. I've seen it time after time, year after year. Anybody, can anybody testify to that? Can anybody say today he's rescued? He's, he's been with me. And I pray today that you would trust him with your furnace. When the heat gets turned up, when your back is against the wall, when you're in the line of fire. Let's continue. Here's what the, the fellows could have done. Daniel and his cronies, they could have been, become confrontational. They could have become compliant. But they were courageous. I've said this both weeks prior to this, but that's what we do. That's what we do. We either, we're either confrontational, like, oh, I hate the world. The world's going to hell. Retreat from the world. Everything about it. I'm, not, I'm saying no to everything. I'm Mr. Fuddy-Duddy. I'm Mr. Sanctimonious. I'm just saying no. It's all going to hell. Or we can com be become compliant. We can just say, I'm just going to assimilate. I'm just going to become like them. And remember, Daniel and his boys made a difference because they were different. They made a difference because they were different. Not self-righteous and holy. Remember the favor? Remember how they had to walk? Remember the wisdom that they had to possess? So they would say, okay, 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 not okay. And they chose not to defile themselves. They made up their minds ahead of time not to do so. Uh, verse 18, but even, I, I, this is the game changer. This is so powerful. I envision Denzel Washington stepping out and reading this verse. But even if he does not rescue us, we will want you as king to know that we will not serve your God worship the gold statue that you have set up. If your idol is money, sex, or power, it's a false God. And if you're tempted in any of those areas, and we all are, resolutely decide to determine in your heart that you will live out your faith, that you will learn and follow from the one true God. And this is what we see in them. Here's what we need to be careful of. It's so easy to mix up my personal agenda with God's promises. You serve God. You learn from God. You listen to God. You take in his word and you cling to the promises that are clear from his word. You need other Christians. You probably need to listen to a pastor. You need your favorite podcast, man or woman, to teach you of the Bible. Your preacher recommends good reading to enrich your intellectual and spiritual life. Well, you need to know what his promises are because here's the thing. I think my personal agenda is God's promise. And what does that leave me doing? If God doesn't show up, if God doesn't rescue like I think he should do when I want him to, then what do I say? God, you didn't keep your promise. But God's looking at some of us going, I didn't promise you that. So what does he promise? 
Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was extremely hot, isn't that the understatement of the passage? The raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Y'all, some of y'all, y'all hadn't been to church. Y'all thought, oh, they, were, they died. What a terrible ending. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. Powerful people only have yes men around. Be careful. Powerful, yes, yeah, yeah. Long live the king. Yes, yes, yes. He exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire when the satraps prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around. They saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair on the other heads was singed. The robes were unaffected, and this is like exclamation point, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I issue a decree that any one of the, any people, nation or language, who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn. This is his favorite line. Limb from limb and house made of garbage dump, for there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Verse 30, then the king rewarded the three in the province of Babylon. I want to give you four principles very fast as we close. And Lauren and the team, I'm going to give them so fast that I'm going to ask Lauren and the team to make their way up. The furnace is inevitable. I mentioned this earlier. I, uh, I'm a self-professed furnace dodger. God, I don't want the fire. God, I want it to be easy. God, I want all my roles as a pastor and husband and father, I want everything to be a raging success. I don't want the furnace. But listen, the furnace doesn't care who you are, who you believe, or what your personal faith is. Uh, the furnace comes. The, the heat will get turned up. Your back will be against the wall. You will be in the line of fire. Number two, the furnace reveals who I am. I see some of you taking notes today. Write down Proverbs 21.10. Proverbs 21.10 says... When the storm comes and if you falter, your strength is small. If the storm comes and you falter, your strength is small. You get that, right? Some of you are sports fans. You're like, hey, we're 2-0. and we're, You know what I say? It's a few weeks ago. We're 2-0. and And then somebody in your group goes, well, you hadn't played anybody. And you're like, yeah, you got to play somebody before you can brag about how good you are. Then you start playing good teams and, you, you know, you got to face some opposition. Who are you when you... If you play two loser teams and you tell me you're 2-0, and oh, you haven't told me anything about you, about your team. But you're telling me a lot about you if you've been through something. And if you've been through something hard and you've seen God be able, then you're a testimony. And God, by the way, God is looking for Daniels in our world today. Number three, the furnace refines who I am becoming. Note taker, write down 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Don't be surprised by the fiery ordeals that come our way. Don't be surprised by the furnaces. Don't be surprised. But God is using that. You can ask a firefighter, hey, tell me about fires. They'll tell you, man, they can destroy you. You can ask a steel worker, tell me about fires. And the steel worker can say, you know, the, the fire can refine. When it cools down and the impurities are all off of it, it's something that it should be. And only in the furnace does the crud of your life come off. 
and the core, the essence, the distilled character of who you are, does that come into play and is that shown? And that's what God wants to do because you and I got all kind of stuff that needs to be taken out of our lives, all the crud. Can you say that, church? And number four, when you are in a furnace, you are never alone. It's easy for us. Here's two lines of faulty thinking. Stand with, with me. It's easy to think when you're in the furnace that this is God's punishment. He doesn't love me. He's getting me back. He's hurting me. Or it's easy to think this is God's passivity. He's not able. He doesn't really know. Our God is not a rescuer. He's not able to deliver. But the trust, uh, the, the key to it all is that it's not God's punishment. It's not his passivity. What he wants to offer you is his presence and to be with you in the fire. Hebrews 10, I want to close with this. Hebrews 10, 32 to 35 says, remember the early days. Can I stop there? Remember the early days. Remember the early days. Remember when it was hot? You remember and you thought, it's too hot. Not going to make it. But you're here, aren't you? Remember the early days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. And at other times, you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. Because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. If I gave you all the Monopoly money in the board game, all the and I said, go spend. The moment you got to the first catch register, you know you'd be in trouble because nothing's behind the money. And you know confidence is that way? If you tell a kid, don't be scared in the dark, you haven't really given them much. They're, they think monsters are under the bed. But if dad sits down and dad's with them and dad assures them, then they can be confident. And the God with us, God's presence in your life is all that matters. And everything else is monopoly money. Makes no, it, it, I'm wasting my breath if I'm telling you to be confident and there's nothing behind it. But I'm telling you there's the one who matters above all else. And you and I can be confident in the fire. Do you believe that he's able? Do you believe that he's able? Let me tell you, I believe he's so able. I think we should bow down. I don't think he should leave early. I think he should give us a few minutes. And uh, some of you come to the altar just literally physically bow down and say God you're able and some of you could come pray for me because I've got a little fire in my own life as a leader and a pastor you could pray for me I, somebody did in the first service that really meant a lot to me is that okay to say and you could pray for each other let's sing all of us sing none of, none of you go and uh, let's give God these moments if we could pray for you we would love to do that about a fire or about anything in your life let's give God a few minutes